Now, you'll notice that our series is titled Religion, James, in 10 parts. And if you're keeping track, which many of you probably are, this is actually the ninth sermon. But you just heard me say in the prayer that it's the last sermon. And the reason is you have a pastor who can preach but not count. Right? Because I thought I counted 10 Sabbaths leading up to our Christmas program and our Sabbath next week. But in fact, uh, next week we're having a really awesome children's program. So I thought there were 10 parts, but in fact there are only 9. And so today is going to be, notice what I've done here, just to be a little clever, parts 9 and 10. Right? So you're actually going to get two sermons today, so it's going to be two hours. So if you thought you were going to get out by 1230, you can, you can kiss that. That pipe dream goodbye. No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to be a full two hours, but we are going to go through an entire chapter. And up to this point, we've been dividing the chapters into two parts, right? So chapter one was two parts and two, three, four, five. And five times two, of course, is ten. But today we're going to go right through all of chapter five in toto. And our sermon is titled, All the Poor and Powerless. All the Poor and Powerless. We we begin this week's sermon by reminding ourselves of what we looked at last week. And last week we were confronted, and I got so many texts after last, or not last week, but the Sabbath before. Of course, last week we had Pastor Wilson here. But I got so many texts from members of this church saying that sermon was a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. And I think it really resonated because we were confronted with two really penetrating questions, not from the preacher, but from James himself. He says, who are you? And remember, that was in the context of judging someone else. Who are you to judge Because in whatever you judge, in whatever you criticize, in whatever you insult, you judge and criticize and insult the law. The second question was, what is your life? And we were reminded yet again with that palpable Old Testament sense that James has, your life is a vapor, your life is grass, your life is a flower, your life is smoke, your life is a mere shadow. It's just here in a moment and gone in an instant. And it's not because our life is insignificant that we're told that our life is a, is a vapor or a flower or a grass. It's because our life is so fleeting, right? So ephemeral. It just, it's just here in a moment and gone in a moment, right? And so we're going to lead from chapter 4 into chapter 5, keeping in mind these two questions. Now, as we get to chapter 5, verse 1, notice with me that the first two words are, Come now. Or the NIV says, Now listen. Now listen, this is an invitation as we come to this last chapter. It's actually the very same phrase that we find in 4.13. Come now, listen up. As James is drawing his epistle with this strong, practical, ethical flavor, as he's drawing it to a close, he, he says, listen up. I've got something to say. Come now. Now listen. And what we're going to find is that in James chapter 5, and there's all these really cool connections between chapter 5 and chapter 1 and chapter 5 and chapter 2, and I could spend the whole time, or at least half of the time, dissecting those structural connections, right, and showing how James is picking up in chapter 5 something that he laid down in chapter 1. He's resuming in chapter 5 something that he started in chapter 2, but just trust me on this, that what we're seeing here, without going into all of the detail, is a resumption of the very thing that James began with. So look at James chapter 1, this is the second verse. Right, James chapter 1, the second verse. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face, what's the word there? Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. What kind of wisdom? Not just general wisdom. But in the context of the book of James, wisdom to deal with the various trials that were coming to these early scattered Christian communities. They were were befuddled. They were surprised. They were confused. They couldn't understand why all of these trials and these persecutions and these exploitations and these temptations were coming to them. And so what James says is, I'm going to write to you about how to deal with these trials. Maybe some of you have been dealing with trials of various kinds or vicissitudes of various kinds or difficulties, difficulties of various kinds. James's letter is just as relevant for us today. And he says, pray, not not just for any general wisdom, but ask God who gives generously to all without fault finding, and it will be given to you. Wisdom to know how to address yourself to a trial, to a difficulty, to, to your life being turned upside down, whether by exploitation or by injustice or by gossip. And so what James is going to do in chapter 5 is he's going to reach back all the way to chapter 1 where he said, I'm going to write to you about trials and temptations and he's going to bring this now to a close. And in chapter 4, we're actually going to see that James is going to speak about themes that he's dealt with before. 
but he's going to wrap them up. These are going to be the four themes we'll look at today. James' closing words. Number one, this has been familiar to us, the hoarding of wealth. Right? James has dealt extensively with the gross economic disparity that existed in his day between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. So we're going to talk about the hoarding of wealth. James is going to talk about the patience of the saints. When you come up to these trials and you're praying for wisdom, don't be impatient. Pray for persevering patience. Prayer for the sick, which is one of the trials. It's, it's one of the trials that's common to all of humanity. Right? None of us just sails right through our whole life with no frailty, with no illness, with no disease. So what happens when we're sick? What happens when the cancer test comes back positive? What happens when our blood pressure is high? What happens when we don't have the energy and the, the spritefulness that we had when we were younger? We pray. Okay? And then number four, uh, just the last three, two or three verses there, James is going to talk to us about recovering of wanderers. Okay? So let's go into each one of these. First of all, the hoarding of wealth. We've mentioned several times that the backdrop for James's book is just steeped in the Old Testament, absolutely steeped in the ethical posture and the strong, practical, ethical, utilitarian stand of behaving in right ways, speaking in right ways, treating others in right ways, right? And this is all set against the backdrop of the law, what he calls the royal law, and three times he quotes from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, right? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. This is really the, the centerpiece of the entire Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor. What are the next two words, everyone? As yourself. I am Yahweh. James has quoted that back in chapter 2. Last week, we will look at this. We looked at verse 16. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. Right? So James is quoted. Now what we're going to see is he's going to quote yet again from Leviticus 19. So let's read the first six verses of James 5. James chapter 5, join me there. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh up like fire. This is this is James in full Old Testament prophet mode, right? He has turned up the prophetic volume. Your riches will eat your flesh like fire. The rest of verse 3, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and in luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Okay, this, this invitation, come now, weep and wail. It just sounds like Jeremiah, sounds like Hosea, sounds like one of the Old Testament prophets. Weep and wail because judgment is coming. And yet right at the heart of this, of this scathing rebuke, of hoarding wealth and of acquiring wealth in an unjust fashion is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3. Yet another quotation from right at the heart of the ethical posture of the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 13. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Man, you're uber wealthy. You own the fields. You have lots of resources available to you, but you are defrauding the common harvester. You're defrauding the common laborer. And so when, when it comes time for James to think about how Christians should behave and how these scattered uh, congregations should behave, he does not say, as many Christians do today, ah, oh, never mind the Old Testament. Ah, oh, the Old Testament, that's for the Jews. The New Testament is for the Christians. If the Old Testament is outdated and irrelevant to the Christian, James sure doesn't know about it. Because when it comes time for James in early nascent Christianity to start exhorting these scattered tribes, he goes to the book of Leviticus. Again and again he says, do not defraud, do not slander, love your neighbor as yourself. Some of you have probably heard that before. Maybe some of your church-going friends, maybe some of your evangelical friends have, have been dismissive of things that you might have said when you've quoted some standard or you've quoted some truth from the Old Testament. Has anybody here ever been made to feel that way? Oh, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians now. We don't need that anymore. Well, don't tell that to James. Don't tell that to James, one of the most preeminent figures in the entire New Testament here, writing and saying, hey, the ethical stance of the Old Testament rooted in the book of Leviticus 
Now, we might be tempted to read this passage and think it's a sin to be wealthy, but we've already dealt with that. We know that it's not a sin to be wealthy. The truth of the matter is, is that if it was a sin to be wealthy, the, the, the majority of us in this room would be living in sin right now. You might be inclined to sit there and think that you're not wealthy, but of course you're wealthy, right? If you made a decision this morning about what shoes to wear, you're wealthy. If you made a decision this morning about which car to drive to church, you're wealthy. If you got up this morning and you opened up a refrigerator that was full, if you have a refrigerator that has food in it, you are wealthy. And so James is not saying wealth in and of itself, money in and of itself is sinful. That's not what he's saying. The problem here is not wealth per se, it's the unjust acquisition of wealth followed, and this is something that particularly galls James, selfish hoarding of wealth, that that wealth is not being put into circulation, that it's not being used for the blessing and benefit of others, right? He's not speaking just to the issue of money here. We dealt with this last week in some uh, extent, and we pick it up even here. James has turned up the volume a little bit. A well-known Christian leader and influencer from the 5th and 6th centuries, Caesarius of Arles, says riches cannot harm a good person because he spends them how? How does he spend his money? Kindly. Think about that as a descriptor for how you spend your money. How do you spend your money? I spend my money kindly. Caesarius says riches cannot harm a good person because he spends those riches kindly. Likewise, they cannot help an evil person as long as he keeps them avariciously or wastes them in dissipation. What Caesarius is saying here is the very same thing that James is saying. Wealth in and of itself is not the problem. If you're a wealthy person that's kind, you will spend your wealth, you will circulate your wealth, you will invest your wealth in a kindly way. If you're an evil person or a godless person, you will retain that, you will spend it avariciously, and you will hoard it. And this is the critique that James has. We mentioned last week about the, the economic reality that is becoming increasingly uh, obvious, especially in first world countries, that's been referred to as affluenza. Not influenza, but affluenza, where we have so much, and yet we still feel at some level like we need more. And it raises the question, when do I have enough? When do I have enough? This morning, I was actually thinking about this because it's really easy. I don't know if you have this experience when I'm reading the Bible. It's sometimes easy for me to think about you and members of the congregation, and sometimes harder to think about myself. And so I did something that's probably a little embarrassing. I went to my closet, and I took a picture of my own shoes, right? These are, these are David Asherick's shoes right here in the closet. slightly messy. I apologize for that. But that, that if you came to my house right now, and you opened up the door, at, this picture was just taken this morning. This is what you would see, right? And I actually had my son, my oldest son, Landon, count my shoes because I was too embarrassed to do it. And I'm at 49 pair of shoes. I could probably shame some of the women in the church. 49 pair of shoes, pastor. How much is enough? Is 50 enough? If I, if I just get that pair of vans and they're on sale and they're, they're a different shade of red. They're a different color. They have different color laces. Now, it's funny because I don't think of myself as like a shoe hoarder. But when I see that picture, I'm thinking, David, how much is enough? How much is enough and how much is too much? Affluenza, needing more, spending more, wanting more, desiring more. Maybe for you it's not shoes. Maybe for you it's electronics. For you it's a new car. For you it could be whatever it is. Whatever your particular sickness is, your particular strain of affluenza, what James is saying is not that wealth is a problem, but the spending of wealth in an avaricious way. The hoarding of wealth and not putting it into circulation for the benefit of others. Now, what's quite interesting is right here in James chapter 5, there's something that sounds suspiciously like the book of Genesis. Look at verse 4, James chapter 5, verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, quoting there Leviticus 19, as we've mentioned, cries out. And the cries of the reapers have reached to the ears of the Lord Almighty. Right? I want to bring out something here that's quite fascinating and, and for me, frankly, transformative. I want to read a couple verses and then make the point. Matthew chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what kind of things? He brings forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth what kind of things? Evil things. But I say, now watch what Jesus says here. I got, I got news for you. I say that every idle word 
men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now hold on to that thought. I'm going to give you a second one here. This is from Romans chapter 2, verses 2 to 6. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. And do you think you who judge those practicing such evil things, there's a list there in, in chapter 1 of Romans, and doing the same, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. Jesus said, by your words you will be condemned, and by your words you will be justified. And here Paul says, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. You're, you have a savings account, but you're not putting money into this savings account. You're putting words into it. You're speaking into this savings account. You're either speaking good words as a good man out of the abundance of the good things in your heart, or you're speaking evil things out of an evil heart. And you're, 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 You have a savings account, he says. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath. You've got a savings account of wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to everyone according to their deeds. So you will not be held accountable for what David Asherick says. David Asherick will be held accountable for what he says. This is my checking account. This is my account. Yours is yours and mine is mine. Now, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a person who was hugely influential in the founding and the development of this church, a woman by the name of Ellen White, wrote something that sounds so much like James chapter 5. Just hear this, and then I'm going to pull all this together, a little string at the end. But just hear this out. Riches, oh, sounds like James 5. Power, genius, eloquence, pride, perverted reason, and passion are enlisted as Satan's agents in doing his work to make the broad road attractive, strewing it with tempting flowers. But every word, what are the next three words there? Every word they have spoken against the world's Redeemer will be, watch this, watch this, reflected back on them. Every word they have spoken reflects back on them. This is what Jesus meant there as we saw in the Gospel of Matthew. By your words, you will be condemned. This is what Paul meant when he said, you're storing up a treasury of judgment and wrath in your own deeds and in your own words and in your own actions. Will be reflected back on them. They will burn into their guilty souls like molten lead. Not literal lead, of course. Not literal burning. It's, it's like when, when something you've said, you've been caught red-handed. You've said something you wish you hadn't said. You got caught in a lie. You got caught in gossip. You said something hastily. You said something you hadn't said. And then you're confronted by that. It burns. She says in the ultimate reckoning, in the final reckoning, all of those things that have been spoken will burn into the, to the wicked like molten lead. They will be overwhelmed with terror and shame. Why? Because their words are shining back on them. Their actions are shining back on them. The things they said are shining back on them. Not something else that somebody said. Not something even that God is saying. It's what they have said. They will be overwhelmed with terror and shame as they behold the exalted one coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Then will the bold defier who lifted himself up against the Son of God see himself in the true blackness of his character. He's got a savings account and now he sees his savings account. The sight of the inexpressible glory of the Son of God will be intensely painful to those whose characters are stained with sin. The pure light, and I've added these in brackets here, in context, the pure light of righteousness and love and the glory of God's character emanating from Christ will, will awaken remorse, shame, and terror. Now this is key. This is the point I want you to get. If you're like freaking out here this morning, like, whoa, this is really strong language, go read James. Woe to you! Wealthy, woe to you who acquire money in unjust ways. Woe to you who are selfishly and avariciously hoarding resources. So it's not David that's being strong. It's Jesus and it's Paul, right? And it's James. He's saying, hey, look, a day of reckoning, a day of accounting, a day of judgment will come. But this is the point I want you to get. This is not something that God is doing to you. It's not something that God is doing to the wicked. In every case, in Jesus and in Paul and in Ellen White and in James, it's the same thing. The stuff that you have said, the stuff that you have done reflects back on you. All Jesus does is shows up. Jesus shows up. And for those that are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, for those that are not covered by his grace, 
the, the presence of Jesus, this is key, not the actions of Jesus. This is hugely theologically significant. You may or may not be getting it. But the presence of Jesus, not the actions of Jesus, are the thing that's painful. Look at it again. The pure light and glory emanating from Christ awaken remorse, shame, and terror. When you read the New Testament, we don't generally see people coming into the presence of Jesus with shame, remorse, and terror. But there are some instances, like when Jesus cleansed the temple of the money changers. Right? Why did they meet the presence of Jesus with shame and remorse and even with terror? Not because of something that God was doing to them, but because God was showing something that they were doing. So in James, he says, hey, you wicked, you rich, howl and weep because the monies that should have been paid to the common laborer, the monies that should have been given to the common harvester, those monies are crying out to me. This is not something God is doing to the wicked. It's not something God is doing to the selfishly rich. God is saying, you have done it to yourself. It sounds so much like a text in Genesis chapter 4 verse 10 where Cain has murdered Abel and God's response is, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God is not showing up to do something to Cain. God is showing up to say, Cain, what have you done? What did you put in your account? What have you done? What have you said? And so this is a key point, the judgment. And just let this just settle into your soul today with freshness. For some of you, this could be an absolutely transformative theological revelation. Let this just soak into your bones right now. Judgment is less about God doing something to them, the wicked, and more about God letting them have their own stubborn way. That's what it says in James. The the monies, the, the defrauded monies, the unjust monies are bubbling up to me. You have defrauded these laborers. You have violated the basic ethical stance of of all of humanity and, and of the Old Testament to do unto others as you would have them do to you. You're in a privileged position. You're in the position of wealth. You're in a position of money. And yet you have leveraged that wealth in a way to actually further extract an economic disparity between you and the poor. When Lord Acton famously observed that the that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, it's not necessarily true. It's not an absolute correlation, but there is a connection between an increase in wealth and a decrease in spirituality. We've noted that in our James series. So that as we get more money, as we grow further and further in power, in this case economic power, we have less and less dependence on the true source of power, which is God. So that in a really weird way, wealth can actually spell your demise. Not because money is in and of itself bad, as we just saw Caesarius of Arles a moment ago say, a good man spends his money kindly if he has wealth. But wealth corrupts people because it gives us options and opportunities that would not otherwise be available to us. Hosea chapter 13, verse 9. Oh, Israel, you can just hear the cry of God's heart. You, in the old King James, thou hast destroyed thine self. But I am your help. I love this. God's not like, I'm going to destroy you. I'm really angry. You've been unjust. You've been unkind. You've spoken hurtful words. You've spoken gossipy words. I'm going to sort you out. God says, you have sorted yourself out. The blood of your actions, your account cries out to me. All right, number one, the hoarding of wealth. Wealth itself not being the problem, but the hoarding, the selfish hoarding and the avaricious spending of wealth. Number two, the patience of the saints. Come with me to verse 7, James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, in light of the fact that James is writing to scattered tribes that had been displaced from their ancestral lands and were now in these sort of isolated communities... What are we going to do when we're being exploited by godless, wealthy people? What are we going to do when we're being exploited and our wages are being kept back from us? Do we rally? Do we get out our threshing uh, tools and our pitchforks and go kill the wealthy? Right? Is is this a call for sort of the the, the social upheaval to to turn against in in revolutionary style? No. Verse 7. Therefore, in light of these trials and in light of these temptations, as you've prayed for wisdom, therefore be, what's the next word, everyone? Be patient. That's the very thing we don't want to be when we're 
enduring difficulty or trial or temptation. Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. He uses an agrarian analogy for an agrarian people. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it to until it receives the early and the latter rain. These were significant features of the uh, Middle East sort of agricultural cycle. You had the early rain, which is sort of October, November, and then the latter rain at the end of of the Northern Hemisphere's spring, uh, summer, that that would begin to bring things to full harvest. Wait, he says, the rains are coming. Verse 8, you also be patient. That's three times already he said the word patient. Establish your hearts. Settle into the truth. For the coming of the Lord is near. Do not grumble against one another. What was happening in these congregations was, as they were being oppressed by others, the temptation was to lash out to their own congregations, to their own people, perhaps even to their own families. Right? When we, get, when we are under trial, when we're under duress, when we're under temptation, the temptation is to lash out at those around us. He says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is even at the door. There's nearness. For James, the judgment is not something that's far distant. It's close for James. Even at the door, verse 10, my brethren, think of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. There it is again, a fourth time, patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. And the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But we all, my brethren, do not swear But above all, excuse me, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by an oath. Let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no, lest you fall into judgment. Hear the invitation to patient endurance. Hear the invitation to have wisdom in the midst of suffering is given to us by James. And it sounds, and this will be very, if you're here as a generational Seventh-day Adventist or somebody who's been a Seventh-day Adventist for a long time, you know the significance of Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, coming as it does at the climax of the three angels' messages. Those three angels' messages found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 12. And the climax of those messages are, here is the, say it with me, here is the, Patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and cling to the faith of Jesus. This idea of being patient is really important, but it's fascinating. I looked up the word. I don't know if you know that this tool exists in Google Analytics. There's some really cool tools. You'd, be know, you'd know about this, Rochelle, of course. So you can type in any word into Google, and what it does is it will survey books and periodicals, and it will show you usage for that word over any time frame. I've just done from 1800 to 2000 here. Right? And I thought, I wonder if the word patience, as, as modernity is coming and technology is coming and we want what we want and we want it now. I just, I, I just wondered if we were talking less about patience and my theological biblical suspicions were confirmed when I typed the word patience into Google Analytics. And you can see on the far left side of the graph there is 1800 and the far right is 2000. Has there been a precipitous decline in the use of the word patience? Yes, there has. Why? Because we don't want to talk about patience. We, why should we be patient anymore? Right? It's funny, 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 funny. They just did this survey. They do these things every now and then, but I just was exposed to this one recently, where they interviewed a number of children in America. Right? Probably it would be different in Australia because we have more urban centers in America. But they interviewed a number of children in America, and they asked them what, is, what meat is. They asked them a lot of questions. But one of the questions they asked, what is meat and what is milk? And an astonishing number of American young people did not know what meat was. They say, what is this? Well, this is meat. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what is it? Well, it's hamburger. Yeah, that's true. Good on you. What is it? It's hamburger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is it? They don't know. The idea that meat comes from a cow, the idea that milk comes from a cow, in our increasingly, where do you get meat from? You get meat from a supermarket. Now, back in the 1800s, you didn't get meat from a supermarket. You got meat from a cow, a cow that had to be born, a cow that had to grow to maturation, and a cow that had to be slaughtered, right? And where did you buy your fruits and your vegetables? You got your fruits and your vegetables if you bought them at all. You just went out to the the orchard or to the farm. You got them. So, So patience was just a part of the way that life worked in earlier times. Nowadays... Right? We have what we call fast food. And we have these iPhones that give us instant availability, any information. We just want it now. When the, when the Wi-Fi slows down, we think we're going to die of a heart attack. Like, man, the internet is so slow. I'm, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm uploading this, this image. It's only five megabytes and it's taking 30 seconds. I can't believe it. I'm downloading this movie. This movie's taking two hours to download. We're just like, oh, man, what am I going to do? I'm going to die. 
right? But when James was writing, he's writing and he's saying, hey, look, be patient. I know it looks bad. I know the wealthy are exploiting. I know the wealthy are oppressive. I get it. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. And he says, you're enduring suffering. Did you know that the root word of patience is the Latin word pate, to suffer? That's why a doctor sees patience. The, the word means to suffer. And we don't like to suffer. When we're waiting and it's not coming quick enough, we suffer, especially today. And look at that. I mean, the analytics say it right there in front of us. We are becoming not only less patient linguistically, we are just becoming less patient people. Does the book of James have something to say to us? Yes, be patient. You don't have to wait for your food. You don't have to wait for your internet. But be patient. The Lord hears the cries of the laborer. The Lord hears the cries of the, of, the, of the wages that are defrauded. The Lord hears all of that. And he stands not in some far distant nook of the universe. He says he stands at the door. For James, there is an imminence. There is an immediacy to the fact judgment is coming. And it's not coming way out then. He says judgment is coming. The judge stands even at the door. And as Seventh-day Adventists, if any people are positioned to correctly understand the nearness and the imminence and the immediacy of the return of Jesus, that should be people who in their very name have the word Adventist. Can you say amen? We're waiting. We think it's coming. If Jesus does not return in your lifetime, which statistically is a, is a probability, perhaps we learned last week that because you are a vapor, because you are smoke, because you are dust, because you are a shadow, because you are a flower, because you are grass, the coming of Jesus in your lifetime is going to happen like that, within like 80 years or less, statistically. So even if Jesus does not return in bodily form in your life, you will die and your judgment is even at the door. So James says, be patient. He says, God sees the injustice. Just as he could hear the blood of Abel crying out from the ground, he hears the injustice, he hears the oppression, he hears the defraud. He sees all the savings accounts that people are saving up for themselves in their words and in their actions. He says, just be patient. Be patient. I know it's difficult, but suffer. The very first thing we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love is, say these three words with me if you would. Love is patient. Some translations are even stronger. They say, love suffers long. Now let that settle into your mind. I just told you that the root word of patience was the Latin word pate, to suffer. Love suffers. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I love this, man. James, again, with his ethical stance on speech, his ethical stance on the treatment of others. I'm going to give you three or four different translations here. Here he says, do not grumble against one another. It has a kind of onomatopoetic, what's that word? Onomatopoeic. Onomatopoeic quality. Am I saying that right? Close, close. Uh, It sort of sounds like the thing it's describing. Don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another, he says. Don't lash out in your frustration. Don't, another translation, do not complain about each other. James's congregations, those scattered, oppressed, exploited congregations were beginning in their frustration and their lack of patience to lash out at one another. Let me tell you as a pastor of this church, I'm so thankful to report, no one in this church ever grumbles against another member. And no one in this church ever complains against another person. Whoo! Thank God that's a problem we don't have. Don't find fault with one another. No one in this church ever finds fault with another person. I'm here to report in three and a half years, I've not had a single instance of fault finding in another person. Do not grudge against one another. I I liked this translation. I think it was the NLT. Because the word grudge in the English has that sort of long-term frustration. That like long-term negativity. Not next week, not the next week, or some weeks coming forward. I'm going to get up here with probably Mel, and we're going to give you a report on what's called the NCD. NCD is a diagnostic church growth tool. I'll tell you all about it. And we're going to show you some, some, some diagnostics from our own church 
from 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, even right up to the very present, many of you have taken the NCD survey, and I'm going to show you diagnostically. We're going to track some fascinating trends in our local church, in our church. And one of the things, oh, it pains me to say this. Oh, this guts me to say this. But if you look at our NCD scores, they're actually exceptionally high. In fact, and I say this with humility, the highest Adventist church in Australia in this church, the Kingscliff Church. Numerically, it's the highest in Australia. It's absolutely amazing, and I'll tell you more about that. But here's the point. You have some areas that are really high and really encouraging, and then you have these other areas, what NCD aficionados call trees and stumps. Things you're doing really well and things you're doing really poorly. Trees and stumps. Trees and stumps. And do you want to know what one of our lowest scoring points is on the 130 questions? On the 130 questions that people are asking this church, and I'll show it to you in a few weeks, one of the things that people respond, and you respond by either saying, agree, strongly agree, or neutral, or disagree, or strongly disagree. And one of the questions is, I know of people in this church who have bitterness towards others. And it's one of our lowest marks. One of our lowest marks. I know in my church, I strongly agree. Strongly agree. I know of people in this church that have bitterness. And James would say, do not grudge against another. Don't complain. Don't fault find. Do not hold a grudge. We'll explore those NCD results in greater detail. But friends, I just, want you to, I just want to speak to you today that you can just be free from grudge holding. You can be free from complaining. You can be free from grumbling about somebody else. Just let it go. Right? That's, I, I thought I was going to start singing the, the Frozen song. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Ty Gibson just this week tweeted this, and I thought, man, that's, that's pregnant. That's powerful. Ty tweeted this. He said, people don't leave churches. People leave people. It's probably, if you're a long-term member in this church, if you've been a member in this church for five years, you know people who no longer come to this church. Talk about this local church. You know people. I could stand up and list some right now if I opted to, right? I could list people that no longer attend this church. And it's very unusual, in fact, almost non-existent, to meet somebody who no longer attends the Seventh-day Adventist church who says, well, I don't believe that anymore. I no longer believe that Saturday is the Sabbath. I no longer believe that when you die, you sleep the sleep of death and await the resurrection. I no longer believe that Jesus entered the most holy place in 1844 to commence the investigators. I don't believe that anymore. That's rare. You do occasionally have doctrinal departures. It does happen. But what you find again and again and again and again and again in like 90 plus percent of cases is people say, I was hurt. I was injured. I was made fun of. I left and nobody even noticed I was gone. People don't leave churches. People don't say, I'm not going to go to the Kingscliff Church anymore. People say, I was hurt. I was grumbled against. I was begrudged. Ty says, they don't leave churches. People leave people. We're going to come back to that point in just a little bit, and I've got to hurry up. Blomberg and Campbell, in their book, James and Exegetical Commentary, bring this section of James to a close. They say, Christians should respond to oppression not by usurping God's role as an avenger. Don't get your pitchforks out and start slaying the wealthy, nor by making unrealistic promises to their oppressors. He says, "Don't, don't swear and say, I will never or I will always. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He says, just have a perseverance, and I like this, a persevering and prophetic patience. Only God can fully and fairly right all wrongs, and he has promised to do so at the return of Jesus. Can somebody say amen? So the judge is at the door. Let him sort it out. Don't grumble. Don't gossip. Don't complain. Don't grudge. Let God sort it out. I'm just going to deal briefly with this. Number three, prayer for the sick. Let's take a look at that. Verse 13, is any among you suffering? 513, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will sozo the sick. Yes, thank you, Leon. Sozo the sick will save the sick. A little shout out to the sozo restaurant. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he says, hey, let me give you the example. Elijah was a man with a nature. He was just like us. You cut him and he bled red. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. 
One of the trials, one of the struggles that James's communities were facing was not just oppressors, not just oppression from violent, or not violent, but uh, uh, wealthy and affluent people, but certainly probably violent at times too. But one of the struggles they were facing is the struggle that we all face, and that's sickness. Right? Sickness, disease. It comes, and he says, look, when that happens, get the elders of the church together. This is key. One of, the, one of the backbones of the Protestant Reformation that we talked about last week is the priesthood of all believers. It doesn't say, if somebody's sick, get the pastor. you, 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 you got to get Pastor David there. you got to get Joel there. Because nobody else's prayers matter as much as theirs. Right? When, when Joel graduated from Avondale, they gave him a little card. He gets, he, his prayer counts for two. Right? No. No, what it says is, get the church together. We are not Catholic. We don't believe that the priest has some mediatorial role between the sick and God. It says if somebody's sick, get the church together. Get the elders together. Get the priesthood of all believers together. Get the saints together and pray. Not just the pastor. It's not just the elder. Your prayers matter just as much as mine. In fact, could matter more. Could be more powerful. Could be more efficacious. He says Elijah was just a person. He was just an ordinary person, but he prayed and great things happened. Prayer for the sick. Prayer is an act of war. When you pray, you are engaging in an act of war. You are entering into the battlefield of the great controversy where the, where the scriptures are absolutely clear that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. When you pray, you are entering into the great controversy. It's an act of war to pray, to intercede. Can the church say amen? Where's Leon? Is that uh, Leon? What am I saying? Lance, are you, are you comfortable with that? Prayer is an act of war. Absolutely an act of war. And we had some amazing answers to prayer here recently. It's just God is working. Now, here's the thing about prayer. Some people say, well, I don't, I, prayer, I don't understand it. Me neither, by the way. I don't understand it, but I believe it, and I've seen it. Prayer works. Can somebody say amen? And the specific prayer that James is writing about here is prayer for the sick and the anointing with oil. I'm going to tell you one quick story. Quick story. I was just recently back in America at Arise, about two months ago. And one of my dearest friends, Matt Minicus, and his wife, Josie Minicus, who's also one of my dearest friends, just had their first baby, right? Their first baby. I think it's little Eliza is the name. And this little baby was born, and this little baby was so cute, and we wondered for, you know, for years, our friends wondered, uh, the friends wondered, when are they going to have a kid? When are they going to have a kid? And finally they did. But the, 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 the delivery was tough. It was tough. 44 hours of labor. She lost a liter and a half of blood in the delivery. And her body went into such shock after the delivery that, that her, her body wasn't working right and she wasn't producing milk to feed the baby. And when I landed on the, on the plane there, I got a text from Ty and he said, hey, we're having an anointing service for Josie, can you come? And I was absolutely jet-lagged, totally tired, and I said, yes, of course I can come. And I went there. Within, within an hour or two of landing, I went to Matt and Josie's house. Here was Josie. She's already thin and, and beautifully thin, but she just looked frail. She looked so frail and she was holding little Eliza in her arms and she was crying and she said, I just want to be able to feed my baby. Fortunately, even though she wasn't producing enough milk, Josie had two friends that were also uh, pregnant and they, and they were nursing and she could, could get extra milk from them. But it was, it was three weeks, two or three weeks now after the birth and she just wasn't producing milk. And she was just weeping. She was saying, it's just natural, it's right. And, and I don't fully understand this, but there is a, a hormone, specific hormones that are released when a woman breastfeeds her own son or her own daughter. And there's a bonding that takes place there. We know this now biologically. The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, can a woman forget her suckling child? Even in the pre-medical age, the pre-modern age, the prophets knew that something happens when a woman breastfeeds her own son or her own daughter. And, and Josie just wanted that connection. And, and she's, I just want to feed my baby. And so I was there with Matt and Yamil and Ty. It was not a great big affair. There were just the one, two, three, four, five of us in the room, six including little Eliza. And we got some olive oil and we laid hands on her and we pled with God, God, Josie wants to be connected to this little baby. She wants to be able to breastfeed. Please, please get those, get those ducts working. Get the lactation process happening. We know that her body's been shocked, but we're pleading with you, God, please work a miracle. And we anointed her. In the name of Jesus. It was a simple, beautiful ceremony at the end of which uh, we sang a little hymn. And would you believe, from the very moment of anointing, her, her ducts began to work and she began to produce more than enough milk 
to feed that little baby, and it continued, and it continues to this day. Don't ask me to explain that. There's no medical explanation for that. Right? It's a, it's a, now, I'm sure that if you went and figured it out, some medical uh, doctor could say, well, actually, what happened medically was this. But what happens when we pray is the natural cooperates with the supernatural, and prayer works. I don't understand it, but I believe it. How many people in here with a raising of hands have seen what they would call a definitive answer to prayer? Yes. So James says, if you're sick, call the elders, not just the priest, not just the pastor. There are no more special. Just get your friends together. Get the elders together. Get the church. Rather than grumbling against one another, rather than complaining against one another, rather than grudging against one another, when there's somebody that's ill, when there's somebody that has a need, gather around them, put your hands on them, anoint them with oil as a symbol of total resignation to the power of the Spirit, and sing and pray. Pray brings the church together. Can Lance say amen? It does. Prayer brings the church together. But complaining and gossiping and grudging tears the church apart. James says, pray. And then the last two verses. Verse 19. Brethren. Brothers and sisters. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error the error of his way will save a soul from death and has covered a multitude of sin. We mentioned a moment ago people that no longer come to church. They've been begrudged. They've been hurt. People don't stop attending churches. People stop. People don't leave churches. People leave people. And James says there are some who have wandered. The trials have been too great. The illness has been too great. The temptations have been too great. And some are not only grumbling and complaining. Some have left fellowship. Some have left leadership. Some have left connection. Some have wandered away. The word here for wandered is very similar to the English word planet. They're just they're no longer connected. They're just wandering, right? The ancients didn't understand orbits as we understand today. They're just wandering. It looked like they were wandering. No. He says, bring them back with love, with tenderness, with invitation. This is how he ends his whole letter. That's it. That's the end of it. When James writes with prophetic and pastoral unction to the church, he's covered many different things. But at the end, the the last thing, the thing that James said, how can I close this letter with with ancient hand on ancient paper, with ancient pen? How, 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 How can I close this letter? He said, I know what it is. For those that have wandered, for those that have left, bring them back. Bring them back. And he says, when you bring them back, this is so cool. He says, when you bring them back, you, you save them from peril. You don't just save them salvationally. Only Jesus can save salvationally. But you save them from peril. You save them from loneliness. You save them from heartache. You bring them back. And then he says this. This is how he ends the whole letter. You cover a multitude of sins. When we bring people back to the fold, we cover a multitude of sins. Church, I want to tell you something here today. We are called to cover, not uncover, sin in others. God has not called you to uncover somebody else's sin. He has called you to cover somebody else's sin. Are you aware of some little morsel? Some little morsel. Somebody acted out of line. Somebody did something they shouldn't have done. Somebody smoked something they shouldn't have smoked, stood where they shouldn't have stood, did what they shouldn't have done, drank what they shouldn't have drank, ate what they shouldn't have ate. Do you know a little something? If you're the only one that knows it, you know what James would say? Shut up. Let love cover a multitude of sins. We're not talking about outright delinquency in a church here. We've already dealt with that. Of course, there are structures in a church to deal with perpetual and habitual and continual apostasy. That's not what James is describing here. He's saying somebody has been hurt. Somebody has been wounded. Somebody's been discouraged. Somebody's been depressed. Somebody has left. They've wandered away. He says, go get them and bring them back. And don't feel like when you come back, you have to detail every reason that they left. You don't have to go over itemizing their sin and their sinfulness and their departure from Jesus. Just bring them back and say, brother, love covers a multitude of sinners sins. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Come back to the fold. God has not called us to uncover the sins of others. He's called us to cover the sins of others. This is Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Can somebody say amen? Oh, why is there the desire in us to point out somebody else's weaknesses, somebody else's frailties, somebody else's sins? It's because we're insecure and we feel better when we think we're slightly better or slightly up on another person. 
but a really cool thing can happen. Rather than trying to be over or above another person, we can just be, we can just be across the table from that person. We can be on an equal footing with that person. We can cover a multitude of sins. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, above all, Peter says, love each other. And what's the last word there? Love each other deeply. Not superficially, not perfunctorily. Love each other deeply. Well, what happens? How do we love each other deeply, Peter? How do we do it? Love covers over a multitude of sins. It's not just Jesus' love that covers. Jesus' love, or, Jesus love covers in a salvational sense, but the love of the church covers in a relational sense. We can cover a multitude of sins. I got some morsels on some of you. I got some morsels on some of you, and some of you probably got some morsels on me. I got some details. Right? And I pray to God. I say, God, I don't want to see these things. I, I want to see people for what they can be, not for what they are and not what they have done. We need to speak faith. We need to speak hope. We need to speak belief into people and not bring them down for past infringements or past transgressions. His mercies are fresh every morning. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Lowest on the NCD score. I know people that have bitterness. Well, why do they have bitterness? Because they've been hurt, and hurt people hurt people. And yet James is saying, just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. If you're going to uncover sins, then uncover your own. James says, confess your faults to one another. It is okay to uncover some sins, your own. So you can go to a brother and say, Lockie, I've been a jerk. You can say, Lockie, I've been a jerk. I'm sorry. I don't think I've actually been a jerk, but maybe I have. So I've just, you just got that little sadness in your eye there. And I thought, oh, man, maybe I have been a jerk. <laughs> right? I can go to my wife and I can say, sweetheart, I blew it. I, I, didn't, I didn't handle that situation well. I can go to Janine and say, here's one. Janine, I'm so sorry. I am terrible at answering your emails about approving the minutes. And I'm sorry. I just want to have, have a moment right here. I just need a moment right now. See? No grudges? There's a moment right there. Okay? See, see, it's okay to uncover sins. Just uncover your own. Right? I can go to Courtney and I can say, Courtney, I, I'm so sorry. The other day at the business meeting, I came off as a little negative and I'm sorry. Can I have a hug? Okay. That's a real moment right there. That's a moment. You see, see, if I'm going to uncover a sin, I'll uncover my sin. Amen? That's what he says. Confess your faults to one another. Humble confession. Barry, i got to land this plane, mate. Humble confession, not... What are those next two words? What are the words? What are the words? Hurtful gossip. Humble confession, not hurtful gossip. Well, I'm going to get my musicians up here. Come on up, guys. Three weeks ago, I reached out to, to Mel and Britt and Brendan, and I said, there's this song I really want to have as the climax, as the closing to our series on James. It's the perfect song and it just embodies so much of what James is talking about and it embodies a lot of what's happening in James chapter 5. God is with the poor and wherever the poor are, God is there. God is with the weak and wherever the weak are, God is there. Can the church say amen? God is with the sad and wherever the sad are, God is there. And God is with the hurt and the hurting. And wherever the hurt and the hurting are, God is there. And God is with the sick. That's why we go to the hospital to give flowers. God is with the sick. And wherever the sick are, He is there. Can the church say amen? He says, says, the cries come up to the Lord Almighty. The judge stands at the door. The role of the church in this intercessory mediatorial role is to, is to make it easy for people to believe, for make it easy for people to come to faith. Because sometimes oppression and injustice and hurtful words can get the best of us. And the church sometimes can actually make us feel further from God than we should. But the role of the church is to be a bridge. It's to be drawing people, drawing all the poor and all the powerless and all the hurt and all the needy and all the weak, drawing them to Jesus. Wasn't it Jesus that said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, all you poor, all you powerless, all you weak, all you hurting, all you exploited. Come to me, all you sad, and I will give you rest. Sometimes the poor, the weak, the sad, the hurting, and the sick are them. 
It's those people over there. And when that's the case, God calls us to go to them, to minister to them. But every one of us in this room knows that sometimes those people are us. Sometimes we're the weak. Sometimes we're the hurting. Sometimes we're the poor. Sometimes we're the powerless. But here's the good news of the book of James, and he says it again and again with prophetic power and pastoral concern. But here's the good news. Whether you are in a position right now of spiritual strength and you're going from glory to glory and, 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 and you're living from day to day and you're just growing with Jesus, or whether you're at a place of discouragement, a place of difficulty, a place of depression right now, the good news is, and James says it again and again with prophetic authority, he says, God is always God. God is never not God. God is never not God. And he says, pray for wisdom to deal with your trials. Pray for wisdom to deal with your temptations. Pray for wisdom to deal with your grudges. Pray for wisdom to deal with your bitterness. Pray for wisdom on how to deal with that backslidden person that's gone away from the church. Maybe you were instrumental in that person going away from church. Maybe you need to go uncover a sin. Maybe you need to go uncover a sin with somebody that doesn't come to church anymore. Not theirs, yours. Maybe you need to go uncover a sin. God is inviting all of us, the powerless and the powerful, the weak and the strong. God is inviting all of us to himself. God is inviting all of us to come to him, to the Lord Almighty, as James says, and to confess, you are God and we are not. We don't want to take you off the throne in judgment, as we talked about Two weeks ago, we don't want to take you off the throne in terms of claiming to know the future. We're going to go to this city and we're going to make money. Father, you are God. We are dust. We are a vapor. We are smoke. We are a shadow. You are God. And you have called us as a church, as a bridge, as a conduit to bring the poor and the oppressed and the weak and the powerless to you. And so as... Mel and Britt sing, and as Brendan plays, just, just let this song seep into your soul. Just, just let it be a moment of worship. Though they sing, may your heart sing with them. And may our, may our singing, the actual singing of Mel and Britt and the singing of our heart, may it just reach up to God, and may we say, you are God, and we are not. Amen.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are sometimes the powerless and we are sometimes the powerful. Father, sometimes we are the weak and sometimes we are the strong. Sometimes we are the hurt and sometimes we are the hurting. Father, whatever we are, you know us. We are saving up an account, Father, with our words. We are putting words of healing or words of hurt into an account. Father, one day in the not-too-distant future, perhaps at the return of Jesus or perhaps in our own personal death, we will give an account. And Father, every one of us here today is a sinner in need of a Savior. Every one of us today possesses no righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ. So Father, we cry out to you right now, praying that our account will be replaced with the account of Jesus, that our unrighteousness will be taken away and that we will be credited with the righteousness of Jesus. And Father, we are tempted to want vengeance and to want justice now, but we know that justice is yours. Justice belongs to you. And so, Father, in the interim, in the meantime, as we are poised precariously between what has been and what will be, give us wisdom. Give us patience. Give us perseverance and endurance so that we will not take matters rashly into our own hands. Neither will we be given to depression or discouragement. But, Father, we would see ourselves as agents of healing, as agents of ministry. Father, help us to uncover our own sins and to cover the sins of others. Help us, Father, to be the people, the church, that you have called us to be. And I pray for our own local church here, the Kingscliff Church, where, Father, apparently there are some who have bitterness and others who know of bitterness. Father, may healing begin even today through this sermon. May your spirit speak to people and say, you know what, you need to go uncover a sin, your own, 
You need to go and make it right. No more gossiping. No more grudging. No more complaining. No more hurting. Father, you know our church. We cry out to you. Today we are poor and powerless. But we look forward to the day in the one one day in the not too distant future when by the grace of Jesus alone we will no longer be poor and powerless. We will be strong and we will be rich with the righteousness of Christ and the fellowship of the saints. Father, you have ministered to us today through the preached word, through the ministry of the Spirit. Minister to us now as we put these words into action, as we go out to others to make things right and to uncover as necessary sins, our own, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. God bless you all.